2006, October 23rd. Today is Lecture 22, Light the Messenger, which will begin in just a moment. Right, well today we've, we've finished talking about gravity. So we're going to start a slightly new section within Unit 4. We're going to be talking about the properties of light and the property of matter. We haven't said anything yet about what matter is. I've just sort of waved my hands a little bit and said amount of stuff. And we haven't talked about the properties of light. Before we can go on to talking about the solar system and really beginning our exploration of the solar system, we have to understand the properties of some of the of matter and we have to understand the properties of light. The primary reason is that almost everything we know about the universe comes by studying light signals from distant places. We've only visited physically or with robotic surrogates a small handful of places even within our own solar system. So we can't learn an awful lot by going there. We can, but it's very, very difficult, technologically very expensive. So as a consequence, we can learn a great deal more by simply learning how to read the message that's encoded in light. So we're going to begin a, essentially a four-part lecture beginning today on the properties of light, the properties of matter, and how the two interact to give us spectroscopy, which is really how astrophysics came to be. And finally, on Friday, we'll talk a bit about the tools of the astronomer, telescopes and the like, which are used to do this trick of measuring light and decoding the message within light. So we'll start with today's lecture on light, the messenger. The key ideas are somewhat more extensive than usual, but a lot of it's facts today. Light is what we need to define what light is. Light is electromagnetic radiation, and we'll describe light as either waves or photons. We'll see that these are, are in fact, interchangeable descriptions. We'll introduce to you the electromagnetic spectrum. That's the sequence of photon energies, the sequence of light energies that give us the, the different forms of light that we use to study different phenomena in the universe. We then need some definitions. We need to def make a distinction between luminosity, how bright an object actually is, and its apparent brightness, how bright it appears to be to us standing at some distance away from a light source. And that's going to lead us to our second introduction of an inverse square law, in this case the inverse square law of brightness. It's going to be a very useful law for us at various places in the solar system as well as out in the universe because it's the fundamental relationship between how bright an object is and how bright it just appears to be. And finally, I want to say something about the Doppler effect. This is using a property of the light, namely that the relative motion between the source and observer is actually encoded on the light by causing a slight shift to red or blue wavelengths proportional to the speed of the source. And it turns out to be an extremely important way we use, in fact, it's the only way we have generally to measure the relative speeds of objects in the space. For example, I can measure the speeds of very distant objects very, very accurately, and we'll see some applications of that more when we get into the class, but certainly we're going to see um, this is going to be a, one of the very powerful tools in the general properties of light. So today we're talking about general properties of light. Tomorrow we'll bring in properties of matter and begin to introduce the idea of spectroscopy. So what is light? Well, light was a real problem for people to explain for a long time. Some people, for example, there's some ancient Greek ideas that it was an emanation coming out of the human eye, that you were bouncing it off things and seeing things come back. Light really is kind of a mystery. We can't hold light in our hand. We can't bottle it up in a bottle. So it's really hard to describe. So I'm not even going to bother with the historical outline of it because it's long and twisted and just go right to the answer. Light is electromagnetic radiation. Now, what does that mean? What do I mean by electromagnetic radiation? Well, the first thing is that it's, we can define it as a wave. It's a self-propagating electromagnetic disturbance that carries energy at the speed of light. 
I'm not sure that's an any more enlightening definition than is electromagnetic radiation, but we'll begin to develop this idea today a little bit. How do we describe this electromagnetic radiation? Well, there's two ways that we've developed to do it. One is to describe it as electromagnetic waves, and the other one is to describe it as particles of energy or particles of light that we call photons. These turn out to be interchangeable descriptions. I can choose the wave description of light and get most of the properties, or I can pick the photon, particle picture of light, and get most of the properties. In reality, light is both. It's both a particle and a wave. And it, we don't really call it a particle wave or a wavicle or anything like that. We call it something else, and it's called a quantum. Basically, qu the quantum nature of matter and the quantum nature of energy is it's really very hard to describe in any simple metaphorical way. But if you can think about it as kind of a ghostly mixture of waves and particles, you get most of the basic conceptual idea, and the rest of it comes out of mathematics. So we'll see a little bit of this as we go along, but I'm not going to go into deep detail about quantum mechanics in this class. It's just too abstract, and we don't need that level of detail for what we're going to be talking about. So I want to keep this at kind of a practical level. Let's start with waves. The reason why I like waves is a good way to start. That was actually one of the ways in which people viewed light that was very successful in predicting its properties. The particle picture of light, the idea of little corpuscles of light, is actually much older. But the idea of light as waves is very, very useful. It came up mostly in, this, in the 18th and 19th centuries. And we still use the wave description a lot because, again, it's, it's got some nice intuitive features. First, we have to ask, what is a wave? A wave is basically any periodically repeating pattern of disturbance in any medium. So, for example, sound waves. You're all hearing me speak up here. What you're hearing is compression waves in air. The muscles in my throat are changing some air cavity in my, in my mouth and my sinuses, and I produce basically small waves of compression and rarefaction, compressing and, and letting loose, compressing and letting loose, that are sitting there and propagating themselves across the room. What are they carrying? Well, they're carrying away energy. I'm exerting some energy. I'm compressing air. That energy is being carried out on the airwaves. It's tickling little bones in your ears, which tickle little nerves, and you hear me. So I'm transmitting energy, if you will, from my lungs and muscles into your ears. And you're hearing that as the sensation of sound. Another experience of waves that you've all probably seen, since you've probably always been to a seashore or a lake or somewhere, are water waves. Water waves are changes in the height of the wave surface. Here, the restoring force is not gas pressure, but is gravity. You try to lift up a little water, it will flow back down. So if I start pushing up and down, bouncing up and down in the water, there's going to be a series of waves that are going to float away from me. Those waves also are carrying energy. For example, if you ever live near a seashore, especially near the oceans, you would see a sudden increase in wave activity when there were storms hundreds of miles away, or even sometimes even a thousand miles away in the deep ocean. Those storms are dumping lots of energy into the ocean, and that energy is being carried away as waves and transmitted up to your shore. So waves carry energy. It's one of the things we don't often think about, but they carry energy. You can also get waves in materials. For example, I can jump on this stage, and the people who have their feet on the, on the sitting on the stage here felt that a little bit. Now, some of you also felt the airwaves, a little bass note that came through the room. That's carrying away some of the energy of that jump and smack onto the stage there. So waves carry energy. Now, light waves are different. They, first of all, they carry energy, so that way they're the same. They carry, in fact, quite a bit of energy. But they travel through a vacuum. They don't need a material to wave in. 
They travel through a vacuum at the speed of light. And they don't need a material. They don't need a substance to be waves in. Water waves need water. Air waves need air. Material waves need some kind of solid. Seismic waves need rock. But light's different. Light doesn't need waves, a material to wave in, because it waves on itself. And this is why it was so hard for so long to really understand its properties. People originally thought if it's a wave, there has to be a medium, and they made up the stuff called the luminiferous ether, the light-bearing ethereal substance that threaded through all of space. Turned out to be nonsense. It was a dead end, intellectually, because the actual answer is it waves on itself. We'll say a little bit in just a second what that's all about. The other thing is what it travels at. Light is also different in the sense that its speed through a vacuum is constant, quite independent of energy, or wavelength, or frequency. The speed of light is a constant for all light waves in the universe, whether I'm talking about radio waves, visible light, gamma rays or x-rays, stuff like that. They all move at the speed of light. And we actually know the speed of light. In fact, we've defined the speed of light exactly to be 299,792.458 kilometers per second. That's it. There's no more decimal places in this. And the reason for that turns out that we have defined our units of length, the meter, in terms of the travel of light. And so I can define the speed of light exactly. It's one of the few places in science where I can tell you exactly what a number is because I've kind of cheated a little bit. I've defined my metric system, if you will, in terms of the speed of light. Now, the speed of light is the fastest thing in the universe. That's another clue to what's going on here. Light is very different from other waves in, in these regards. Every wave moves at exactly the same speed through a vacuum. It doesn't need a, a medium to wave in. It waves on itself. So it's a very different kind of material. It turns out to be the way that energy is transmitted around the universe in its most efficient way. And it really is the stuff that binds the universe together. In many ways, space and time are unified through the agency of light. It's a, it's a very different idea than what we started out with, of little corpuscles running around carrying energy. Here's a wave. This is a class. could be a water wave. This could be a sound wave of some kind. Waves have three properties. They have a speed of propagation, which we saw in the little movie there. I can play this backwards a bit. It moves with some speed. If I set up a fixed reference point, I can ask how frequently the wave is passing that point. For example, this might be a post in a, on a dock, and we could be watching how frequently waves pass by that dock. And I can talk about the wave frequency, the number of waves per second that pass by my reference point. Or I can talk about the spacing between the wave peaks, or alternatively, the wave troughs, if I want to do that, which is called the wavelength. I can have very, very long wavelength waves. I can have very, very short wavelength waves, waves that come with little peaks really close together. If the wave is moving with the same speed, which I call here c, which I stand in for the speed of light, in fact, c is often used as the stand-in for any kind of wave. You might see c with a little s subscript. That's a sound speed. Um, a c with uh, various other subscripts might be the speed of propagation of very seismic waves in the Earth. c is very commonly used as a wave speed. I can relate the speed, the wavelength, and the frequency all together. They're not independent. It's a very simple formula. The speed of a wave is equal to the wavelength times the frequency. So if I have a very, very long wave at a given speed, it's gonna you're, you're going to pass by that post only infrequently. Whereas if you have little tiny waves, a whole bunch of them are going to pass by the post every second. So the way to think of it is long waves are slow, and high-frequency waves, short waves, are very, very fast.
very, very frequently waving up and down. And that gives us the fundamental relationship between wavelength, which is one way of measuring the waves, watch the peaks go by, or the frequently, watch how fast the oscillations come by. But when we talk about light, the speed never changes. The speed of light is always in a vacuum C. Now it changes slightly in materials. You do get some effects in materials, as we'll see in, in other lectures, where some colors of light move faster than others, say, going through glass. That's what, that's what makes prisms work or rainbows work. But if we had a vacuum, completely empty space, all those waves are going to move at exactly the same speed, independent of the frequency or the wavelength. Now I said that light waved on itself. Here's a little movie of that. This is actually what an electromagnetic wave is. The reason why it's electromagnetic is it's a series of changing electric fields waving up and down. But if you have a changing electric field, you produce a magnetic field. So for example, if you made an electric current go around in a loop, you'd have an electromagnet. You'd have magnetic fields threading through that loop of wire. So a changing electric field produces a changing magnetic field. But as a changing magnetic field comes in, it begins to retard the electric field and so begins to roll it back. So a changing electric field gives rise to a perpendicular changing magnetic field, which gives rise to a changing perpendicular electric field, which gives rise to a changing magnetic field. And so the two basically wave on each other. They're at right angles. The magnetic field and the electric field are exactly right angles. And as the magnetic field grows, the electric field and magnetic field interact with each other. This is what I meant by saying that light waves on itself. Instead of being a single phenomenon, like changes of pressure with a sound wave or changes in water height in a water wave, light is actually a dual phenomenon. It's electric and magnetic fields threading together through space, propagating forward at the speed of light. It's not exactly the kind of wave people thought of, and this is why it was very difficult for them to work out the mathematics of waves. It really wasn't worked out in detail until just about the end of the 19th century, just a few years before the invention of the first electromagnetic transmitter, a.k.a. the radio. So it's really very mysterious properties that it's got. Well, light as a wave is a useful description. There's a lot of ways I can describe it. I can talk about the wavelength of light. I can talk about the frequency of light and its speed. And most of the properties work out, but not all of them. And that leads us to a second description of light, which is commonly used, light as particles or photons. So we can also treat light as if it was a blast of, of little particles, each of which are carrying energy. We call these particles of light photons. Photons from the Greek photos, meaning light. These are massless particles. I could not hold photons in my hand like, say, a, a handful of pebbles. You simply cannot hold a photon at all. It's a massless particle that carries energy at the speed of light. And it always moves at the speed of light through a vacuum. If I put out my hand and stop the photons, like I stand up in front of the screen here and stop the photo blue photons coming against the screen, those photons partially bounce off my hand. That's why it feels blue. But some of them actually stop. And when they stop, it isn't like I've got it gathering up. It's not like there's a pile of you know stopped blue photons sitting there piling up at my feet here. They're giving up their energy to my hand, and my hand heats up a little bit. You've all had that sensation. If you go up close to a light, it's putting off a lot of both visible light as well as infrared light. And if you hold it up near an incandescent light, you'll feel your hand get warm. That warmth is you absorbing the energy from photons. You're destroying those photons and turning them into heat, turning them into basically vibrations in the molecules in your hand that gives you the sensation of warmth. So I can't collect up particles. They're massless. If, if I stop them, they're gone. They've given up their energy. And they always move at the speed of light, regardless of their energy. 
Now, what is the energy of a photon? Here's where we can actually relate it to the wave property. The energy of a photon is equal to a constant H called Planck's constant. It's named for Max Planck, a physicist who first figured this out. And F, the frequency. So just like that wave frequency, how frequently do the wave peaks pass us by, if I describe the light as, as photons, the energy of light is proportional to the frequency. This tells us that high frequency light has a lot of energy in the photons. Low frequency light has low energy. Again, this is kind of intuitive. If you have high, low frequency light, you kind of get a slow rolling oscillation. There's not much energy in that. Whereas high frequency light is really fast. It's really energetic. I tire out really quickly when I do that. Yeah, it's a silly analogy, but it's how you can keep it straight. High frequency is high energy. That's it. That's pretty much all you have to know about the particle nature of light. We can prove it in various ways, and we'll see some consequences of that later. Now, what are this range of energies? What, are we how do we, what kind of light do we have? Well, it's clear that we can describe light by wavelength and frequency, united through the speed of light. Basically, the speed of light is the wavelength times the frequency. Or I can talk about the energy of the photons making up the light. Do I have high-frequency, high-energy photons or low-energy, low-energy photons? The whole range of photon energies or wave energies that I can possess makes up something called the electromagnetic spectrum. It simply is the range of all possible, the sequence of photon energies I get from lowest to highest. Now, the way these things sort themselves, and the way we'll traditionally sort themselves, is by energy. And I can relate energy to frequency through the Planck formula. Energy is proportional to frequency, so low energy is low frequency. But low frequency, these low, slow rolling waves have very, very long wavelengths. So I can also speak of it as long wavelength light. Examples of low energy, low frequency, long wavelength light are radio waves, microwaves, and infrared. These are forms of light that have very, very low energy, very, very large wavelengths, very, very low frequencies. So for example, radio waves. If you tune your dial to, I don't know, 98.5 on your FM dial, that's 98.5 megahertz. That's 98.5 million electromagnetic waves per second. If you dial up a little further to 1410 kilohertz, that's 1.4 megahertz on the dial, that's 1.4 million waves. Lower frequency, lower energy. That's down the AM band. So AM radio basically uses lower energy photons than the FM band, which uses higher energy photons. Or you can think of it as electromagnetic waves emanating out from the antenna and then being picked up by your car antenna. Moving up a bit, I get microwaves and infrared. We'll see these laid out here in just a second. At the other end of the spectrum, high energy means high frequency. And high frequency means very rapid oscillations and therefore very small waves, very short wavelengths, small wavelengths. So examples of high energy light include things like ultraviolet radiation, which is capable of burning the skin and breaking up molecules. X-rays, which are capable of penetrating the body and being stopped only by bones. So you can take pictures of your teeth or your broken bones or something. And gamma rays, which pass through everything, pretty much, in the body. And do bad things if they hit molecules and DNA. They tend to hit them and break them and mutate them. So these are dealing with the very highest energy photons, ultraviolet X-rays and gamma rays. And kind of bracketing that in the middle is the most important area of light, certainly for us, it's a rather provincial view, visible light. Well, let's see this as a picture. 
This is a very common graph, and we're going to be sampling the electromagnetic spectrum pretty much throughout the rest of this class and into 162. So it kind of bears a little bit of time spent here. What we've done is we've set, laid out the electromagnetic spectrum. I want you to pay attention to the middle part of this diagram first. Going here from left to right, I'm going from the highest energy light, gamma rays, down to the lowest energy forms of light, which is basically low frequency radio waves. So going from left to right, the highest energies are gamma rays. Next down is x-rays and ultraviolet. I then have a little tiny thin band, which I've expanded out on the bottom of this plot, which is visible, wave, visible wavelengths basically blue through red in the colors of the rainbow. At slightly lower energies below the red is infrared light, followed by microwaves, radar, then for those of you who may remember television in its pre-cable days, UHF and VHF television bands, the FM radio band, the AM radio band, and way down here where the atmosphere starts becoming opaque are very, very long wavelength bands that are used to communicate, for example, with submarines. So the entire range here, from gamma rays, the highest energy photons in the universe, to the lowest energy radio waves we can make here on Earth, makes up the entire electromagnetic spectrum. So that's the first main part, be able to know all of the parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, gamma rays, x-rays, UV, visual, infrared, microwave, and then radio, generically, down here. That's the order from highest to lowest energy. Now, there's a couple other features on this graph. One of them is to show the wavelength on a scale here. The, lowest energy gamma, the highest energy gamma rays have a wavelength of about 10 to the minus 12 meters. That's one trillionth of a meter. Visible light tends to be measured in hundreds of billionths of a meter. We usually use nanometers. So for example, the visible spectrum runs from about 400 nanometers up to about 700 nanometers. That's violet light up to the deepest red that we can see. Infrared light tends to be measured in microns to a few microns. These are now waves which are getting to be about the size of a human hair at the middle of the infrared part of the spectrum. Microwaves tend to be measured in millimeters, a few fractions of a millimeter to a millimeter. So for example, in a microwave oven, the wavelengths inside of a microwave oven are little cavity oscillators that produce waves that are getting kind of to millimeter size. When you get down to things like television bands or regular broadcast television bands and FM radio bands, you're talking about waves that are measured in meters and tens of meters. So here, for example, is 10 meters and round numbers is about the FM band. Think about how big an antenna is for a typical car radio. It's typically about a meter long. You typically want it to be a fraction of the wavelength that you're trying to pick up. And then AM can actually be measured in kilometers. An AM, the furthest out AM wavelengths can actually get out to kilometers in length. So you get these gigantic tall antennas that are broadcasting AM over large distances. So the wavelengths are running this way from shortest wavelengths, gamma rays, to longest wavelengths, AM. Finally, the top of the picture, there's this purple set of lines. This shows you how the Earth's atmosphere transmits or blocks various wavelengths of light, various energies of light. It ranges from, at the bottom of the curve here, is the atmosphere is completely transparent. The light just passes right on through unblocked, all the way up to the top there, where the atmosphere is completely opaque. And here we notice that the atmosphere blocks a lot of wavelengths and only lets certain wavelengths through to the ground. Not surprisingly, we evolved with eyes capable of seeing in the dominant wavelength or energy region where the Earth's atmosphere transmits. 
we would not do very well to have ultraviolet sensitive eyes because not very much ultraviolet sunlight gets down to the ground. That's a good thing because ultraviolet light causes skin cancer, among other things. Out in the infrared, a lot of the infrared light is blocked by the atmosphere. It turns out to be blocked by molecules, water vapor, carbon dioxide, things like that. That's the basis of the greenhouse effect that keeps our Earth's atmosphere warm enough to have liquid water. And if, if it gets too far, like on Venus, it can actually cause the atmosphere to go up to hundreds of degrees Kelvin. It then blocks it out until we get to the radio wavelength, and there's a huge window with wavelengths somewhere between basically about a centimeter up to a few meters in wavelength, the Earth's atmosphere suddenly becomes completely transparent. You might notice, for those of you who know a little bit about the history of astronomy, the very first telescopes were not surprisingly using the human eye. The first non-visible light telescopes were radio telescopes built just after the Second World War, after the invention of radar. Why? Because the Earth's atmosphere is transparent. Very short wavelengths here are blocked by the Earth's ionosphere. Up in the high atmosphere, there's a bunch of charged particles, and they block long frequency, lo low frequency, long wavelength radio waves. Infrared to microwaves is blocked by molecules in the atmosphere. That's a hint as to what kind of energies are involved with this. Typical energies here are molecular energies. And then up here, ultraviolet through X-rays to gamma rays are also blocked by the Earth's atmosphere, which is a good thing. We didn't get to do gamma ray or X-ray astronomy until we learned how to send satellites into orbit and get above the Earth's atmosphere. Similarly, some of the best infrared observatories have also been in space. So we can do visible light astronomy from the ground, radio astronomy from the ground, little tiny bits of infrared here on the fringes. But if I wanted to do very low frequency radio, very high energy gamma ray, ultraviolet, or X-ray astronomy, or wavelength or certain types of infrared astronomy, I have to go into space. So there's lots of pieces here. We're going to see this repeated at various times this week, but this is a good introductory slide. All right, let's back up a bit and talk about the visible spectrum, because this is actually where we're going to spend most of our time working. Visible spectrum is very simply that tiny sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can see with our eyes, where we get a physiological sensation of sight. The wavelengths involved are between 400 and 700 nanometers. A nanometer is one billionth of a second, that nano index we learn in the second or third day of class. The frequencies associated with it are between 7.5 times 10 to the 14 and 4.3 times 10 to the 14 waves per second. You can now see why we're going to talk about wavelength when we talk about visible light more than frequency. Frequency is there, but the numbers are inconvenient. I don't actually have a word for numbers of, of frequency that big. That's how many hertz is that going to be? That's beyond gigahertz, that's terahertz, it's awful. I won't even try to use a word for that. And this is why when we talk about light, visible light, we're often going to talk in terms of its wavelength. That's what's nice about being able to sort of use the wave picture and the photon picture interchangeably. For every energy of a photon, I can associate a frequency because the speed of light is a constant for all wavelengths to every frequency I can associate a wavelength. So I can interchangeably, without skipping a beat, switch between a wave picture and a photon picture and never, 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 never lose track. Now, the basic colors that we see with the eye have a relationship of energy. And the basic range runs like this. Red is the longest wavelength, lowest energy light we can see. It has a wavelength of about 700 nanometers. And then you go up through the familiar colors of the, of the visible spectrum. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. If you want to remember that, 
Roy G. Biv, which is not just the name of a fancy gallery down on High Street. In fact, it is the old, age-old acronym for remembering the proper order of the primary colors through the electromagnetic, visible electromagnetic spectrum. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Roy G. Biv. So if you have troubles remembering this order, just remember Roy here and you're in good shape. Humans can't see very much. We can see from 700 nanometers in the red down to about 400 nanometers in the, in the violet. We're barely sort of sneaking into the ultraviolet. And it turns out that our eyes are most sensitive to the green here at about 550 nanometers. Now you can get some idea of this sensation if I, what you, how sensitive your eyes are if just for a second I kill the lights. Well, most of the lights. You can see that the green there looks like it's really, really bright. The red's kind of fainter and the violet's kind of fainter as well. That's no accident. Your eye is most sensitive to green light and then the sensitivity falls off towards the red and the violet parts of the spectrum. So that's why green lights always look brighter than red lights even though the actual power in the light, the number of watts in that light would be actually identical. All right, which brings me to how bright is a light source? All right, we've just introduced the electromagnetic spectrum. We've talked about the basic visible colors. That's pretty basic stuff. Now we want to start asking some questions about measuring light. What's the most basic measurement I can make of light? Well, the most basic measurement I can ask you is how bright does it appear? What do I mean by a bright light and a faint light? We need a way to quantify this sort of sensation of brightness or faintness that we get. And the way I'm going to quantify that in, in, in scientifically here, is I'm going to do this by counting up the number of photons that are emitted every second from the source. So if I have a source with 100 photons per second and a source with 10,000 photons per second, the 10,000 photons second per second source is going to be brighter. By definition, how much brighter? Well, 100 times brighter. 100 times 100 is 10,000. But I need to be more specific about what I mean by which source of photons. There's going to be two ways that I can quantify the brightness. The first of these is going to be fundamental. We're going to call this the luminosity. Luminosity is defined as the total energy, the total photon output from the source. So this is right, right at the source. How many photons are pouring out of the source every second? More precisely, what the luminosity measures is the total amount of energy in photons pouring out every second. We'll see why that's important here in just, just a moment. However, I very rarely am sitting with the source right in my face. I'm often going to view that source at a distance. And as I get further away, I need to then have a second way of measuring brightness, which I call the apparent brightness, which answers the question, how bright does this source appear to be sitting at some distance away? So I can ask, for example, how bright are those lights? But my sensation of how bright that light is depends upon whether I'm really close to the light here or whether I walk across the stage and I'm at some distance away. As I get further and further and further away from a light source, not surprisingly, it gets fainter and fainter and fainter in appearance. But of course, that light hasn't changed its intrinsic luminosity at all. It's still putting out, you know, what is it, 150 watts, 200 watts, whatever the rating of that lamp is. So luminosity measures total energy output of a source the apparent brightness is how bright it looks to me, viewing it from some long distance. Okay, luminosity. Let's, let's be more specific now what I mean by total power output. 
total energy output is measured in something we call power units. Power units have units of energy per second. The metric unit of power is the watt. Now, we've already met the watt. We talked about kilowatts per square meter, for example, of solar brightness. We talked about insulation. We talked about the season. Watt is a measure of brightness. So, for example, a 150-watt light bulb doesn't really put out 150 watts. That's how much power it dissipates to make the light. But it is a measure, at some level, of the amount of energy per second. If I went from a 60-watt light bulb to a 120-watt light bulb, it should, on average, look about twice as bright at the same distance. The important thing about luminosity, and this is its important property, is it is an intrinsic property of the light source, which means it is independent of the distance. So, for example, the sun has a certain luminosity associated with it. If I could somehow read the sun's label, I might say, oh, look, it's you know, 1.99 times 10 to the whatever watts. I forget the exact number off the top of my head. So luminosity is an intrinsic property of the source. It's how bright it really is. It's how much power it's putting out. Why we care about this is because the luminosity sets the energy budget for the source. And we often have to ask, where is it getting its energy? What is the thing that makes it luminous? is making it shine. So how much power does the sun have to generate through some means? That means turns out to be nuclear fusion to make its light. So answering questions of luminosity is often a very fundamental question about an astronomical object. It tells us whether it's got a lot of power requirements or really low power requirements. It's like literally reading the, the label on the top of a light bulb. Is it a 60-watt light bulb or a 1,000-watt light bulb? All of those make a difference. So that's the definition of luminosity. It's the total energy output, and it's independent of distance. Now, the apparent brightness, as I've said before, is different. It's how the bright the object appears to me if I'm viewing it from some distance d away. B is measured in different units. It's measured in what are called flux units. Flux unit is energy per second per area. And now we've taken the energy, and we've spread it out over a certain area. So when we talked about insulation, we talked about the amount of sunlight hitting the ground, we talked about kilowatts power per square meter. We were really talking about the solar flux. Now because energy per second, we just saw, that's the luminosity part. It's the per area that encodes the distance. Because the further I get from a source, if I hold my hand up, I make a little, make, put my hand up, my hand has a certain area, a certain number of square centimeters. And I put my hand up, and I can feel the heat from this from the stage light here. I'm getting a certain amount of energy, or watts per second, or watts, if you're sorry, not watts per second, watts, per however many square centimeters my hand is. As I step back away from the light, I'm feeling less energy on my hand, on that particular surface. So I'm always going to reference my apparent brightness to an area that I'm collecting it in. That area might be the palm of my hand feeling infrared light. It might be the opening of the pupil in your eye. That defines the per area for the sensation of brightness, sensation of apparent brightness. Now, why do we care about the apparent brightness? Because that's what we actually measure. <laughs> apparent brightness isn't observable. Very rarely do I ever actually, I don't actually ever observe the luminosity. I have to derive the luminosity of a source by measuring how bright it appears to be and then knowing how far away I am from that source to take into account the spreading out of the light as I move further from the source. As I stand close to the light, 
The light's very concentrated. I feel warmth against my hand. As I move further away, the area of my hand is the same. The brightness of that light is the same. But I feel less warmth on my hand from that. And the reason is that the light is spreading out. You can just sort of see the idea of a light spreading out as you get further away from it. And so I feel less energy per area. I feel less flux. The apparent brightness declines. So it's what I observe, whether I'm observing with an eye or whether I've got an electronic sensor or something else. This is, again, a common sense notion. Let's take this incandescent light, which I've been using a stage light. Let's take a, a familiar light bulb and look at how the light spreads out. As the light waves travel away, or photons travel out from the light, if I go to distance of, say, one meter, I put up a card, a white card, and I measure the brightness to be one. I then go twice as far away, those same light rays have now spread themselves out over a much bigger area. How much bigger? Well, two times two, or four times bigger. Right? You can see there's one card there. I would need four cards to cover that same area, catch the same number of photons, shown by the red rays. Therefore, at twice the distance, I'm only getting one quarter of the light in each of my little cards. If I go three times further away, I get a light spread out over three times three or nine times the area. And therefore, one of my little cards is only going to have one-ninth of the number of photons passing through it. Because again, I've spread them out over a bigger and bigger region. So because the amount of area that I spread it out as goes as the distance squared, that tells us immediately that light is going to behave with an inverse square law. And sure enough, there's something we call the inverse square law of brightness. Brightness here, I dropped the word apparent, but whenever I use the word brightness, I'm always going to mean apparent brightness. The brightness of an object, the apparent brightness is equal to the luminosity, how much power it's actually putting out at its surface, divided by 4 pi times the distance squared. Now, some of you will recognize 4 pi d squared. That's the area of a sphere of radius d. So the way you could think of it is as a light source shines out into a sphere, as you move further from that light source, the same number of photons has to go through the sphere, but I'm picking off a smaller and smaller fraction of that sphere as I move away. So it's a simple geometric rule. The apparent brightness is inversely proportional to the square of the distance from the source. In words, what this means is if I go two times closer to a source, the source appears to be four times brighter. So for example, if I'm walk halfway towards the light, the light appears to get brighter. How much brighter? Four times. Because there's four times as many photons entering my eye here as when I back up, I'm now picking off the same, my eye is the same size, but it's picking off a big, smaller fraction of that sphere. I'm picking off two squared, or four times fewer photons. So two times closer, four times brighter. Two times further, four times fainter. Yes, sir? The question is whether it's possible to have constructive or destructive interference. Yes, it is. But that's in a special circumstance that we'll pick up a little bit when we talk about spectroscopy. You can actually contrive it to having light waves add together. But you don't get any extra energy out of that process. Because if you constructively interfere on some lines, you have to destructively interfere on others. You've essentially diverted the light that would have gone that way into those constructive points. That's the principle, for example, behind things called uh, diffraction gratings.
play the same game. So there, there are lots of properties. That's actually a, a wave property of light that can work. It's also a quantum property with particles, but it's just a whole lot harder to describe that one with particles. Any other questions? Okay. Inverse square law is very important to us because how bright an object is going to appear depends upon how far away it is. So for example, when we're talking about the solar system, the primary source of luminous energy in the solar system is the sun. The sun has a certain luminosity, L. How much of that solar flux I get to, say, heat the surface of my planet or asteroid or comet is going to depend upon how far away I am from the sun. So if I start out here at the Earth, I get, say, a thousand watts per square meter of flux. That's the apparent brightness of the sun, thousand watts per square meter. But let's say I go out to about the orbit of Jupiter, which in round numbers is five astronomical units. Then I expect the sun's brightness to be five squared or 25 times fainter. So at the distance of Jupiter, make sure I do this right now, I expect 40 watts per square meter. So I go from 1,000 to 40, that's a factor of 25, I've only gone five astronomical units. So being able to measure how much energy I get from sunlight depends on where I am in the solar system, like the distance squared. We also might worry about an object out there that's reflecting light, and I'm viewing it from some distance, like a comet or an asteroid. How bright it will appear to me will depend on how far away it is from me, and it'll depend also on distance squared. Distance, in this case, from the Earth to the asteroid or the comet I'm looking at. So inverse square law of brightness is a very important rule for us. Well, finally, I want to say something about an effect of light, which turns out to be important also to us in astronomy. It's called the Doppler effect. Doppler effect is an apparent shift in the observed wavelength of a light source when that source is either moving towards or away from me. Now, some examples of this Doppler effect. The easiest way to experience Doppler effect is Doppler effect in sound. Stand by the street corner, an emergency vehicle comes screaming by with its siren blaring away. As the siren comes closer to you, you hear the siren's pitch rise. As it moves away from you, it goes, pitch drops. You can also get that impression if you're standing by the side of the railroad tracks and the train is sitting there blowing its horn. You hear the horn increase in pitch as as the train comes towards you, but as the train passes you, the pitch decreases. Those are both physical examples of the sound uh, Doppler effect in sound waves. Because light can be treated as a wave as well, we can also have a Doppler effect in light. Now the amount of the shift, how much you shift in wavelength or shift in pitch, is going to depend upon the relative speed of the source of the observer. Fast has a higher shift, slow has a smaller shift, and the direction, (coughs) whether the source is moving towards you or whether the source is moving away from you. So the Doppler effect is very useful to us. It lets us not only measure speed, but speed and direction. So let's see how this works. Let's do sound, because sound is easy to see. I've got a pair of cats here and a toy squeaky mouse between them. If the squeaky mouse was basically not wound up, but it's just making a squeaking noise, it would emit sound waves spreading out from its little squeaker speaker here inside the mouse cat on the left and the cat on the right both hear these sound waves rolling across. The pitch is given by the wavelength. Low pitch, long wavelength, high pitch, short wavelength. Or if you will, high pitch, high frequency, low pitch, low frequency. So since the wave is stationary, the mouse is stationary relative to the two cats, they hear the same pitch. But now wind up the toy and it's still squeaking at exactly the same squeak, 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 squeak. But now it's moving 
towards the mouse, the cat on the left. As it moves at each point, it emits the light, it emits the light, emits the sound wave, but because it's moving towards the cat on the left, the sound waves get all bunched up in the direction of motion, and they get stretched out in the direction opposite of its motion. So the cat here on the right that sees the mouse moving away, the sound waves that arrive in the cat's ears are spread out, long wavelength, low frequency, low pitch. Whereas the cat over here on the left, the wavelengths are all getting bunched up. So you get short wavelength, high frequency, high pitch. So the cat on the left hears high pitch, short wavelength sound. The cat on the right hears low pitch, long wavelength sound. And this effect of having the waves bunch up in the direction of motion is the Doppler effect. If instead of using sound waves in a squeaky mouse, I use light waves, I would get exactly the same effect in the, in the way the waves bunch up. Works exactly the same as it is for sound. Light moving away from the observer, the wavelengths get stretched longer. Longer wavelength light is redder light, and so I say that it undergoes a redshift. If, on the other hand, the source is moving towards me, the waves get bunched together, I get a short wavelength, high frequency, Short wavelength, high frequency is higher energy, is bluer. So if the source of light is moving towards the observer, I get a blue shift. Source is moving away, I get a red shift. Lower energy, lower frequency, longer wavelength, hence redder. So you can tell the direction of the motion by whether the light is shifted to red or blue wavelengths. You can then measure the speed exactly by measuring the wavelength difference. Now this is one of the few formulas that gets to be complicated in here. If you take what wavelength you observe, look at the difference between what was emitted by the source and then divided by the emission, so you make it a fractional change, that's simply the speed divided by the speed of light. That's it. The Doppler formula is actually very simple. So if I measure the wavelength difference compared to what it should be, that ratio is the ratio of the speed to the speed of light. And then the sign of the shift, red or blue, tells me the direction. So it's a real velocity meter. It tells me both speed and direction. Some examples of this, cop radar. Cop radar is basically a microwave gun. The policeman stands there with his radar gun, points it at the guy in the GTO here who's about to get busted for driving too fast. The microwaves bounce off the car, and then they're red shifted or blue, blue shifted in this case because he's moving towards him. The amount of the blue shift, the radi radar gun knows how much the frequency of the light it sent was, takes the difference the little computer computes and says, 67 miles per hour in a 35 mile an hour zone, you're busted. So it's simply a Doppler effect. It's basically a Doppler radar gun. We've also heard of Doppler radar, for example, the hailstorm that clobbered us a few weeks ago. This is one actually occurring outside of uh, Tucumcari, New Mexico. You use radar, microwave radar bounces off of falling rain. The intensity of the return tells you how much the rain is, but whether the rain is moving towards or away from you or rotating, as like a tornado, gives you a signature of velocities, and therefore they can code the speeds in the weather pattern. So Doppler radar uses the Doppler effect, not surprisingly. We're going to use the Doppler effect in astronomy in some interesting ways, as we'll see in the coming weeks. We'll see you all tomorrow.